giants, a grey lady, wraiths and a spiritualist medium who didn't do his homework properly. Welcome to episode 9 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Back when I was a young boy, which now seems like another lifetime, I lived in Wickham near Gateshead in Tyne and Weir, and played with friends down in the woodlands below Fellside Park. One of the features there was known locally as the Giant's Grave, which was a long earth mound covered with trees pointing up the hill within a farmer's field. To us as kids, the Giant's Grave was a place of high adventure. The reality is that the mound is the remains of an early 19th century coal wagonway, joining the long-gone Bagnell Colliery to the Millbank Consulate Railway Line, the site which is now the Derwent Walk. The idea of giants and giant's graves in the Derwent Valley was not a new one though, with 19th century folklore delving into the subject. Legend has it that the Derwent Valley in the northeast of England was once home to three giants, brothers of tremendous size and strength. In the 1850s, folklorist Michael Denham wrote that there was an exhibit in the Museum of Keswick, Cumbria, said to be the rib of one of the brothers, Cor, who was said to have lived at Corbridge in Northumberland. His brother Ben lived at Benfield side and the other brother Con at Consett. The bone being presented at Keswick Museum had been found, according to the folklorist Balfour, writing much later in 1903, on the banks of the river at Corbridge in 1660, and was part of a huge skeleton said to have been 21 feet long, that's 6.4 metres long for those who think in metric. The bone originally appeared in the museum in 1784 in the Cabinet of Curiosities alongside a two-headed chicken, an Egyptian mummy head, a pair of snowshoes and a set of musical stones. Mackenzie, writing in 1825, dismissed the claim that the bone was a giant human rib, instead simply noting that the bone was the remains of an elephant, a whale or some other terrestrial or aquatic animal now extinct. In 1842, The Ode to the Derwent was published in Richardson's Table Book. The ode was written by Dr John Carr, thought to be around the year 1788, and draws on Carr's upbringing in Muggleswick, near Consett, to bring a sense of enchantment to the valley. As well as placing King Arthur's resting place in the Derwent Valley, with the tales of fairies and witches, Carr also wrote of the giants. In elder time giants upreared, their heads and affronted the skies. Cor, Ben, Con, terrific appeared, with names of anomalous size. Hammond in common they had, and the use of it easy to all. Each whistled, each brother was glad, to throw it three leagues at his call. When Con was approaching his end, deaf, blind, and beginning to rave, with a ploughman he begged, as a friend, to converse at the mouth of his cave. This ploughman, as prudent men do, held his ploughshare himself to escape. Blind Con pinched his ploughshare in two, and pronounced it the arm of an ape. Each brother was said to live in a cave, but shared a single hammer which they would throw to each other when each whistled for it. Each throw could hurl the hammer for nine miles, but one day when the brothers were ageing and Con had lost his sight, Cor whistled for the hammer, but Con slipped as he threw it and the hammer landed near Consett, creating a massive hollow in the earth which became known as Howden. Con was said to have lived and been buried in upon his death a cave at Howensgill, or Houndsgill as it is now known. There are actually caves at Houndsgill, formed through quarrying in the area. An interesting thought was posed by folklorist William Brockie in 1886, when he suggested that the giant Cor, likely derived from Thor, the Norse god of thunder, with the hammer in question having the ability to return to his hand after being thrown. 
As with many legends though, there are other versions. There's a version of this story that can be found in the Tales of Derwentdale by J.W. Fawcett, first published in book form in 1902 after appearing as a serial and concert guardian in 1901, with a new version published recently in 2019 by the Land of Oak and Iron. Fawcett's version allegedly comes from a ballad called Durham Giants, said to have been written by a scholar from Sunderland named Lawrence Goodchild. In it, the three brothers are Con, Ben and Mug, with Cor getting the retcon short end of the stick. Mug was said to give his name to Mugglswick Moor, and the giants were cited as living in the 11th century, infamous throughout Durham. Goodchild's ballad described the giants as having eyes like burning coals, with protruding teeth like tusks, were hairy from head to foot and with immense strength. They were said to feed on Christian flesh, drink Christian blood, and use Christian children as light snacks. They were said to fight with clubs made from pine tree trunks, and were so powerful that no armour could protect against them. Con was eventually killed by an arrow at Anfield Plain, Ben was killed by Lancelot of King Arthur fame at Medemsley, and Mug was killed by a nun with an iron spike while he slept. Today's second story is actually one I wrote back in 2006, which was published in Tynebridge Publishing's book, Tyneside's Finest. The Grey Lady of the Old Assembly Rooms, Fenkel Street, is perhaps one of the best-known ghost stories associated with Newcastle-upon-Tyne. The first stone of the Assembly Rooms was laid in 1774, and was formally opened on the 24th of June 1776. The money for this prestigious building was donated by 129 prominent northeast citizens at £25 a share. Eighteen months after the opening, on the evening of 31st of December 1777, a riotous and drunken party to celebrate the coming new year was underway in what was now known as the Chandelier Room. One of the more unpleasant guests insisted his wife dance for the assembled crowd naked. Shamed and stunned by her husband's request, the poor woman was forced to comply, but afterwards, overcome by humiliation, she ran up the spiral staircase to the musician's balcony and threw herself off, falling to her death in front of the partygoers. Since that day it has been said that her sad and shamed spectre roams the assembly rooms, always accompanied by the scent of lavender and the rustle of silk skirts. The grey lady is also sometimes accompanied by the ghost of a dark, heavy-set man who is said to be one of the first owners of the rooms. In recent years both day and night staff have reported incidents of something unseen brushing past them on the main stairs, of a mischievous presence that blows in the ears of the cleaners, and the odd smell of lavender that appears and disappears the double doors of the ballroom open and close by themselves, ghost investigators have much to occupy them. I'd originally been asked to provide this account, as on the 11th of March 2005, myself and the Otherworld Northeast Paranormal Research Team had been invited to undertake investigation work at the Old Assembly Rooms. At that time, the public relations company Silver Bullet, who dealt with the Assembly Rooms PR, had undertaken a photographic survey of the building, and after looking at the photographs found an anomalous figure standing in the window of the Wedgwood room. The figure was blurred, but appeared to be dressed in grey-blue clothing, so I was asked to provide my opinion on it. Photographic study of the image showed that it was likely female, dressed in a sweater and jeans, with a handbag over her arm, the blurring caused by a photograph being taken on long exposure. While undoubtedly not paranormal, this had however revived the Grey Lady story in the eyes of the PR company, 
hence the invite to investigate. Over the course of the investigation, we did record a number of anomalies, such as the sound of something being dropped onto what sounded like a porcelain surface in the Falstaff bar, the sounds of movement and rapping noises in the chandelier room, and at one point, two camcorders set as lock-offs were physically switched off without catching anyone nearby in the field of view. Oddly, moving shadows that looked like figures were also spotted in the lower ballroom, and a drop of ambient air temperature in the attic was recorded, falling from 15 degrees Celsius to 7, and then rising sharply to 17 before dropping to 15 and levelling out. No breezes could be detected. Now, also according to my 2005 report, a potential apparition was also caught on video camera in the top corridor. I'm going to have to see if I can find the footage, and if I can, I'll upload it on the Patreon supporters page. A number of trigger objects were also set up throughout the building, but nothing was found to have moved at the close of the investigation. Today's third story is actually a paranormal phrase taken from Legends and Superstitions of the County of Durham by William Brocky, published in 1886. The waft, waff or fetch is the apparition of a dying person manifesting itself at his or her departure from this world to a friend at an indefinite distance. In Scotland, it is known as the Wraith. The belief in it is common all over the country, and we have heard many examples of it quoted. Sir Cuthbert Sharp says that at Hartlepool, wafts were still common in his time, and few persons died there before their neighbours had seen their waff. Indeed, he tells us that some persons have seen their own wafts, and under the conviction that their death before long was thereby predicted, have seldom recovered from the impression. The waft usually takes the form of the person about to die, but not always. For a strange cat or dog, a hare crossing the road, or some other startling appearance, is sometimes, from coincidence of time, supposed to be the waft of a friend in the article of death. Today's final story takes us to the quiet and scenic village of Stamfordham, which lies in the county of Northumberland between Hexham and Newcastle. The village can trace its recorded history back until at least 1220 AD, when historians have found the first recorded reference to a church in the village, though archaeologists have identified that the Church of St Mary actually incorporates Saxon stonework, suggesting a much earlier pre-1066 date. The Northumbrian Swinburne family have had the greatest impact in the village over the centuries, having bought lands in the township in 1399, and as with most villages and towns in the county, Stamfordham saw many years of raiding, war and bloodshed, dealing with Scots, border reavers and associations with the Jacobite cause. Stamfordham also has a very strong link to Presbyterianism, with the local meeting house in the 17th century being in nearby Dalton, until a custom-made house was built in the village in 1742. In 1860, this location changed to the main street, and it must be noted that Stamfordham itself had no Catholic church. Rather, it was served by the nearby Cheeseburn Grangers Chapel. In times of political and religious unrest, it was essential for all options to be catered for, and it is said that the houses running along the northern side of Stamfordham Main Street all have connecting doors to allow escaping priests the best chance of survival. Due to all this unrest, the building that is now known in its present form as the Bay Horse 
was built pre-1590 as a fortified farm. It's also known that around the turn of the 17th century, the farm was turned into a coaching inn and remained working in that capacity until conversion into a pub, with the ensuite bedrooms replacing the long hall and with the pub lounge replacing original farm structure. As with many fortified defensible structures, legends of secret tunnels beneath the inn have grown over the centuries. Before its closure, the pub itself was a friendly and welcoming place, boasting excellent food, comfortable rooms, and more than one or two ghostly tales. These tales are what brought myself and the Otherworld Northeast team to the Bay Horse on the night of the 23rd of April 2004. The owners of the Bay Horse were able to tell of full apparitions being sighted crossing the restaurant area, witnessed by more than one person. So too had more than one person witnessed things being physically moved in the kitchen, and footsteps had been heard on the main stairs when nobody was on them. On top of these sightings, a couple of years previously the landlord had caught strange lights on the CCTV security system, and several members of staff felt very uncomfortable when working in one of the rooms. The investigation itself got off to an interesting start. Back in 2004, the Otherworld Northeast team occasionally had a spiritualist medium tag along. In this case, the medium did a short walk around first, and said there was the spirit of a priest in the pool table area, but that he sensed old staircases and figures rushing upstairs to man old battlements. Unfortunately, this simply suggested that the medium in question hadn't quite done his homework properly, with the pool table area being a much later 20th century modern addition to the building, and stories of ghostly priests attached to other buildings in Stamfordham rather than the Bay Horse itself. The sensing of battlements was also wrong, at its core, the fortified farm wouldn't have had battlements. Instead, the fortifications were thick walls and restricted access, much like a basil house. So again, this suggested simply that the medium had researched the location before arriving, noted fortified farmhouse and assumed castellation. The physical investigation was restricted largely to the ground floor level, including the kitchens, restaurant and bar levels. Two rooms from the first floor were also available, namely rooms two and six, with the others in use by guests. The investigation started at just past midnight and finished at 5am. The investigation of the back restaurant area produced minor environmental fluctuations, such as one investigator feeling a breeze on his face that no one else could feel, and two further team members felt temperature fluctuations, picked up on the monitoring equipment as a loss and gain of 3 degrees Celsius. Small flashes of light were also seen but not recorded, and it was noted that walkie-talkies in the room suffered interference, with one of the teams suggesting a nearby mobile phone mast could be the cause. In the bar area, one of the team asked if anyone was present with the group, and there was a long drawn-out scraping sound from the bar as if a drinking glass had slid over the bar itself, though nothing was visible. The same investigator asked again, there was a crash from the kitchen, though no one was present when the kitchen was checked. Later in the night, one group also heard very clearly a chair in one of the alcoves creaked loudly as if someone had sat in it. In the upper floor rooms we had access to, the team heard a number of clicks and knocks that couldn't be sourced, though of course it was commented on that they could have been from the two occupied rooms. Throughout the night, the camera picked up on a number of light anomalies, which while the phenomena at that time appeared mysterious, has now been proven to be caused by dust and insects being caught in the infrared of the night vision cameras, or the flash of the still cameras. If anyone wants to know more about this process, there is an article on the main website entitled These are not the orbs you're looking for. Overall though, the investigation was a warm, comfortable night, with the occasional oddity, though sadly the apparitions reported by the owner and staff did not show themselves to us before we left. 
Historically, Stamfordham was also home to other ghosts. In 1879, William Henderson wrote of two cases. The vicar of Stamfordham has kindly communicated to me two cases of wraiths or apparitions from his parish. The first is of a poor woman called Esther Morton of Blackheaden who went out gathering sticks on the ground of a neighbouring farmer. Looking up, she saw him before her and turned quickly to get out of his way. Then she remembered he was ill in bed and could not possibly be there, so she went home much alarmed and found he had just died. Again, one William Elliot of the same place saw his neighbour Mary Brown cross the fold yard and disappear in a straw house. Knowing her to be very ill, he made instant inquiries and discovered that she had died at the moment of his seeing her. Henderson also made the following note. Three raps given by no human hand are said also to give warnings of death. Such were heard a few years ago at Windy Walls near Stamfordham in Northumberland on the outside of a window shutter and the same night a man belonging to the house fell accidentally off a cart and was killed. Thanks for listening to this episode, hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that if anyone has any stories that they would like read out on the podcast, they can be sent in via the main website or via theboggartwood at gmail.com. Until next time, have a good week and stay safe.